Welcome to the Financial Advisors Advisor, the podcast offering guidance and advice on all things concerning financial advisors, RIAs, and the practitioner. Brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, it's the go-to podcast for any financial advisor in the wealth management business. Learn more and subscribe today at EliteConsultingPartners.com slash podcast. And now, here's your host, Frank LaRosa. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. This is Frank LaRosa, the CEO of Elite Consulting Partners. And as always, I'm here with my uh, COO, Dale Dempsey. What's up, Dale? Hi, folks. I want to first start off the podcast by saying congratulations to Dale. As uh, all of you uh, listeners have probably heard uh, on our earlier podcast, Dale was looking for, uh, for his new house. I think we were talking about that under the uh, what does your mailbox look like. And our podcast was so impactful that Dale not only went out and bought a new mailbox, but he bought an entire new house. Well, thank you. Thank you for mentioning that. It feels great. Awesome. Is the mailbox nice? The, no, the mailbox does need to be changed. I looked at it. I looked at my old mailbox. I want, I'm going to have to change that one too. So I don't think the new, the renters will like it very much. But yeah. That's okay. They're renting. We're working so on it. Yeah. You can get them to change it. <laughs> hey, but again, welcome to the show. If you're a new listener, we appreciate you uh, listening to us for the first time. Don't forget to uh, subscribe, download our podcast, leave comments, uh, give us that five-star rating. We really appreciate it. I've gotten some tremendous feedback um, over the last couple of weeks on on our content, our format. We're always trying to uh, work on improving it, get better and better, hopefully, all the time. Funny enough, so I had someone call yesterday, and I think we'll connect again today from the show. Uh, I had some great questions, so we'll... We're going to try to incorporate that into next week's podcast. So again, thank, thanks for reaching out. We appreciate it. Awesome. Okay. So for those of you that uh, listened to last week's show, uh, you know that we talked about the five steps an advisor should take if they find themselves in a terminated position from their existing firm. And I wanted to talk about it in two parts because it's an important issue. And I know that most of you listening to this podcast today are probably not terminated or in jeopardy of being terminated. And so with this episode, I really wanted to focus on what I feel are common themes, common issues that advisors get themselves into not thinking that it's going to lead to a termination. And these are the types of things that we, you know, you're sort of in in a day-to-day of running your practice, working with your clients, just come up, right? And so my my goal here is for you to just be aware and get you to think a, a little differently about just some common occurrences. Um, so we sort of put them in a uh, Dale's Dale Dempsey's top 10 compliance issues. I, f- I feel like this is like a compliance call, but Maybe you can have your uh, compliance people give you some CE credits for this or something, but we're going to just parallel through these things and uh, go through what we've seen. Many of these, from my 20 plus years of experience, I- I've sort of dealt with with advisors as a consulting firm. You know, we're getting calls more and more frequently from terminated advisors, and these are the sort of common themes. And it's always, I didn't know it was, I, I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. The client was fully aware, blah, blah, blah. Compliance departments don't care. The firm doesn't care. 
Their legal counsel doesn't care. They only care about CYA, right? For them, not you. So, Dale, yeah, Dale's, here, Dale, Dale's top 10. All right, here, here we go. Let's get right into it. Number one, selling away. What do you think, Frank? So Yeah, so selling away is always an interesting one. The obvious selling away, which I'm sure most of you don't do, and that is you're literally selling some uh, real estate investment outside of the firm's purview. You didn't get compliance approval for it, and you're collecting a commission for that, and you know like that's illegal. You're not supposed to do that. The one that gets you into trouble where advisors are shocked or whatever they want to play dumb is when clients call you with ideas on investments that they're looking into outside of the firm and they want your opinion on. You know, hey, Dale, I'm going to, can I send you some information? I have a buddy of mine that wants me to invest in this donut shop, whatever. I had a client call me once and wanted to invest in, back in the dot-com days, e-lenses, right? He wanted him to give him like 5 million bucks. And I think where advisors get themselves into trouble is as soon as you try to do the right thing, right, by giving your clients good advice on an outside investment that you're, whether you're getting paid on it or not getting paid on it, you're giving them advice on an outside investment. And if you, as soon as you tell that client, oh, that seems like a really good investment, you know, you should, if you have the money, you should do it. That's it. You're done. You've just sold away. If that client does that, loses all their money, they're going to come back and sue you because you're the one that said it's a good investment. So that's a tricky one where you may not think you're actually doing something wrong, but in reality, you really are. So just really be careful. It's sort of like when the client calls you up and says, this is sort of not related to selling away, but client calls you up and, well, this this could be related to one of the other ones, which is providing inaccurate information to a firm. Client calls you up and wants to buy a particular stock and asks your opinion. You know, what do you think about this stock? Do you think I should buy it or not or whatever it is? The client says, the client agrees to buy it. You drop the ticket or in today's day and age, you, you know, you hit the dent or button. Back in the day, you dropped a ticket and you marked that ticket unsolicited, right? Because you didn't call the client. But the client asked you your opinion and you gave them your opinion and they bought the stock on your opinion. It's solicited. The way compliance looks at that is that's a solicited trade. And so it, it's that kind of thing you got to be careful about. And I think it's important to note for the independent advisors or if you're thinking about doing that, OBAs, compliance departments are getting a lot more insightful into to OBAs and, and how they're structured and, and essentially what does what. Keep that in mind. So, so number, number two. two is borrowing money from a client. This this is more common than I can't people believe would, it. would actually realize. I can't believe it. So borrowing money from a client. We've seen this all the time. And this is, whether it's family members, friends that happen to have, a, have accounts with you, where what we see a lot of times is it was a it's a client of yours that's been with you for twenty years, and you know those types of clients, after a while, become your friends. Right? That's why they've been with you for that long. That's just the nature of of the relationship that you've formed with them. And when you're friends with someone like that, you know about them. They probably know something about your personal life. You're probably complaining to them one 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 day about some issue. 
money, whether whether you went through a divorce or you're talking you're talking to them about sending your kids to college, or whatever. And the client says, "Look, you know, let me just give you like ten grand. I, I we've seen some where it's hundreds of thousands of dollars over time, and you know you're going to pay it back or you're not going to pay it back. Whatever the thing is, and the client gives you the money, you don't think anything of it, and somehow." Well, first of all, it's, you, you can't ever do that. But where the, where the the catch is, and where you end up getting in trouble, it is never the actual client that that throws you under the carpet. It's the niece, it's the son or daughter of that client when they find out and they're looking through the accounts and they want to know where fifty grand went or twenty grand. And the first thing that they do is. Call, they don't call the advisor. They're not going to call you. They call the branch manager. And as soon as you, as soon as that happens, you're done. The firms have zero tolerance for that kind of thing. One, because you're not allowed to do it. And two, is their concern that if you're borrowing money from a client, what else are you going to be doing with your client accounts that they're not aware of? Right. So churning, stealing money from clients' accounts. They don't. They don't know. And so they are not going to take any chances. And in this environment, firms are taking very little chance on any advisor. It doesn't matter what your tenure is at the firm. doesn't matter if you've never had a CRD issue before. They have a zero tolerance. Even if you borrow money and you pay it back and they find out, you're going to get terminated. Now, the, the issue is going to be if you borrowed the money and don't pay it back, and you have to go respond to a FINRA inquiry, which we covered last last week, and you didn't pay the client money back, they're going to terminate. They're going to bar you because you didn't pay the money back. If you've paid the money back, your best outcome could be a suspension. So maybe they'll suspend you for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days. It depends on the amount of money. It depends on when you paid them back. But if you borrow money from a client, which is a no-no, and you don't pay it back, you're going to have some big problems. All right. So number three, uh, this, I was a little surprised at this one, but you know, holding on to files, basically blank signed documents, Yeah, keeping them around. Yeah. This is one of these, hey, I'm doing it because it, make, it makes the client's life easier. Client's going on vacation or you have a client that goes away for you know a month at a time or maybe they're you know, snowbirds and they go from New Jersey and they spend the, the, the winters in Florida. And so you just have the client signs a few documents. They're blank. You keep them in the files. And then all of a sudden, they're doing a a routine audit. And they're spot checking files. And they find a blank signed document in your possession. The firm's going to terminate you for that. Or there's a high probability that the firm will terminate you for that. Again, it's one of these, yeah, but the client knew what they were doing. Yeah, but the client asked me to do that. And for most of you listening... Your job is to make your client's lives a little bit easier. But what you have to understand is you also have a responsibility to yourself and your family to make sure that you're not jeopardizing your career over making a client's life just a little bit easier. Because no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter what clients, they call in and, and they justify what they say. Oh, no, I asked them to do that. No, I knew they would do that. No matter how many letters the clients will write into the firm about why they shouldn't fire you, they don't care. The firms don't care. So client can have the best intentions. 
wasn't trying to hurt you, doesn't want you to be fired. It's going to follow you to the next firm. You don't want to have a termination on your CRD. So that's one of those things where you really have to be careful about what they're asking you to do. And so you're not allowed to have those kinds of documents in your files, so don't. Number four, we've got time and price discretion, i.e. unauthorized trading. Right. So this is another one that, you know, it's not your it's not your dad's stock market anymore, right? Back in the day, you'd have a great relationship with the client. The client's gonna say, and this is this is under the category of um when when you don't have discretion over a client's account. Right. It's not an advisor based account, advisory based account. You know, you have a meeting with a client, they love you, it's a great relationship, everything's always worked out. And they just say, hey, Dale, you know, you just go ahead and, and do what you think is right in the account. I trust you. I have faith in you, whatever. I've had, I had a situation where the advisor uh, had a uh, surgeon as a client. And so he's in surgery almost the entire day. And over the course of like three years, just told the advisor, hey, look, just, you know, you're never going to be able to get me because I can't answer the phone to do a trade when I'm in surgery. So just go ahead and do the trade. And I'll just look at the statements at, at the end of every month and see what you did, which he did until this account went south because of the stock market. And he decided, oh, I didn't authorize you to do any of those trades, right? So we had to cut the client a check for $600,000 because he was right. Now, we didn't fire the advisor because that was years ago. But today, that, that advisor would have been fired on the spot. So you're basically taking time and price discretion. Even if you had a meeting with a client the week before and you talked about a strategy to buy a particular stock or, or trade two different ETFs, you say to the client, I'm not sure what I'm going to do it. Uh, I'll probably do it sometime later next week because I think the, you know, the Fed's going to come out with interest rates and I want to see what happens. And they go, okay, that's fine. And then next Friday rolls around and you do the trade, but you didn't call the client to confirm that they were okay with doing the trade. That's time and price discretion. It's basically tantamount to unauthorized trading. You're going to get fired for doing that. So document everything you're you're doing. Have a system in place where if you have those kinds of conversations with a client, just have your assistant call the client up, get them on the phone, right? It's a 10-second conversation. Hey, Bill, remember we talked about that trade last week? I want to put that trade in today. You okay with that? Yeah, go ahead and do it. Boom. Just, again... We go very fast on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes you just need to slow down when it comes to these things. It sort of rolls into the next one. Providing your firm inaccurate information during annual audits. Yeah, and the annual questionnaires. Yep, I've seen that. You know, a lot of the times that has to do with OBAs, where they're going to ask you, do you have any outside business activities? And uh, the advisor has one. They're not really sure if they should be whether it's it's required for them to register it or let the let the firm know that they have one, always err to the side of full disclosure. Let them say, no, it's you don't need to disclose that. Get that in writing. Document everything. Part of the whole greater theme of this presentation is really making sure that you document everything. When a compliance department or a branch manager, this is where I see people get in trouble for stuff like this, is you have an agreement or an understanding with with your manager and your compliance officer and they've talked to whoever they've talked to that said, no, yeah, you don't need to disclose that. That branch branch manager gets promoted or gets fired or whatever. The compliance person leaves, they bring somebody new in 
or it's a new sort of a new regional compliance person who disagrees with their opinion. And you don't have anything in writing that says you didn't have to disclose it. And you've been doing that for three years now. That's a problem for you. So whenever there's something that you have to get a compliance response from, sort of like an approval or non-approval, so a non-approval, you still should be getting it. It's like getting approval. Get it in writing. After the meeting is over with, send an email to whoever was part of that conversation with your understanding of based on our conversation today and this, 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 outline what it is you are getting approved according to you, according to whatever, this does not require me to register my soapbox derby club as an outside business activity. Get that in writing because they will come back to you against CYA. All of these things are CYA for the company, not you. A great rule of thumb is if I do this, whatever it is, and I'm sitting in front of the chief legal counsel of the firm, how are they going to look at this? That's what you have to have in the back of your mind all the time. It may slow your decision-making process down, but I think you'll save yourself in the long run. So that was number five. That was number five. Number six, excessive fees or, or commissions without fully informing the clients. Right. This is sort of a one of these catch-all ones where if they if you're you know if you're disruptive, you're loud, you're noisy, you're being vocal about things. One of the things that happens on a regular basis behind the scenes with compliance and, and management is they're constantly looking at trading volume with different accounts relative to their assets, relative to cash coming in and out of their accounts. And they're going to look at your commissions as a percentage of the client's sort of daily values. And if they feel like it's excessive, even if they've not talked to you about it before, it's going to start raising some red flags. And you're basically giving them an out whenever they want it. You're giving them an opportunity to pull the plug on you when they have basically are fed up with you, whether they've had those conversations with you or not. I will tell you, if they start having a conversation with, hey, tell us, explain your trading volume with Bill Smith, you, you need to be careful. You need to start documenting everything. You need to be you know, with that, with today's technology and CRM systems, you need to be very diligent in documenting your conversations with your clients, making sure that they're fully aware of what's going on. If you feel like you don't want to tell your client how much you're being paid commissions because you feel like they might have an issue with that, you're probably charging them too much. So that should tell you something right there. Don't ever be embarrassed with how much you're making. Right? If you're doing a good job, don't ever be embarrassed about it. If you have, to, if you're embarrassed about it, maybe you got a problem. So number seven, and this, so this is different than sort of what we covered before, which was number three, holding on to files, blank sign doc. This is a little different. Forgery. So maybe the client has you sign something for them, but there's just more to it than that. You right? just had that this week, didn't you? I did. Oh yeah. Uh, well, two a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, right. I did. But that Interesting. was you didn't actually forge. Well, he forged it, but well, yeah. So it was forgery. I think. Well, call it fraud, call it forgery. I don't know what, what the distinction is, but he took a, a client's signature, cut it on a piece of paper, photocopied it onto a document. I mean, essentially, it, you're signing it for the client. 
Right. And, and had good intentions. And and the client, oh, don't I they all. think, and I think the client, I didn't talk to the client, but I think the client authorized it. And I did get conf- confirmation that the client moved to the new firm with him. Right. Again, so I'm so sure he authorized you, it. But you just said it right there. They had good intentions. Had good intentions. Folks, all of these things have good intentions generally. Big disclaimer coming up here. If you take money from a client, if you trade in a client's account just to generate commissions without them knowing it, if you literally forge a client's signature because you want to put a trade through, you deserve to get fired. Okay, this is not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today is good intentions. Client says, agrees to the annuity trade, wants you to do it, but is out of the country. Oh, I can't get to a fax machine. I can't get to whatever. You're at a firm with bad technology and you don't even have a signature. The client says, well, just sign it for me and I'll I'll initial it when I get home or whatever. And you go ahead and do it because the client's asking you to do it, good intentions, and you want to put the trade in because it's the end of the month and you want to get your trailing 12 up or whatever the issue is. That's a huge no-no because, again, even if your client tells compliance that they told you to do it, they're not. you're not allowed. Like you're just not allowed to do it. Someone said, oh, well, can't you use like Adobe Auto Signature, whatever that thing is where you – I know I sign documents myself a lot of times, and I use this Adobe thing where I could just drop my signature in there. Right. I did and that I get, for the mortgage. Right. It was, it was easy, but that's the danger. Right. It's easy. Copying, pasting, that's that's definitely definitely creative. I'll give a guy A for effort on that one. But you just can't do it. We, we had one. Stacy was working on one where so it's sort of forgery, but voice forgery. The client was on the phone. They needed to get some type of value for the uh, client's annuity. I forget the exact details, but you know, as you know, the client a lot of times the annuity companies won't they won't talk to the financial advisor that's not on the record, but they'll talk to the client with the new financial advisor. So she gets the uh, client on the phone and they're having a conversation with the annuity company. The client's got to jump off cuz they got they're at a doctor's or something. And so she says while while they're on hold with the annuity company checking on something, Hey, I have to go. Just pretend you're me. And so she did. They were, you know, they were already on the phone. It wasn't. And so she did. And the company found out and they fired her. Client wrote three letters to the firm about why she told the advisor to do it. To your point, she got fired and the client moved with her to the new firm. So it, it's those little things. Again, all good intentions. But the cl- the firms and legal counsel, they don't care about good intentions. Doesn't matter. All right. So number uh, number eight. Number eight. Providing inaccurate or false, call it like dinner meal receipts for client entertainment. Right. Yeah. You go to dinner, and you know you see a client out. You're at dinner with your spouse, but you see a client out as you're walking past. You know, you go and you put that client's name on that dinner receipt, even though you didn't really have dinner with them. Or are you doing an Uber? I saw somebody get terminated because she was putting, um, back in the day when there was taxi cabs. I think there's still taxi cabs, but there are. nowadays it'd be like Uber, right? She was getting her Uber or her taxi cab receipts reimbursed from the company. And she was putting down the names of clients that she theoretically was seeing, but she wasn't really seeing them. Compliance departments will go through and will call those clients to ask if you were 
actually meeting with that particular financial advisor. So this one isn't really sort of a, under the category of good intentions because you probably had bad intentions or maybe you, uh, there was actually a manager that got terminated and barred because she submitted a uh, reimbursement for a phone, iPhone, because right? she spent some money in, in the branch on something that she didn't get reimbursed for. So she thought, well, I'll just get reimbursed for this instead, even though it wasn't company related and they terminated her and she got barred. So I guess you can say that was sort of good intentions, but not really. But just, you know, be careful about that stuff. Make sure it's accurate. You know, back in the day, you could go out with somebody and if the firm's policy was, you know, it's $25 per person per dinner or $50, whatever the policy is, and you go to New York for dinner, you're, you're paying way more than $50 per person per dinner. So in the past, what people would do is just, I'll just put down the names of some more clients and bring the average cost down. You're going to get busted for that one. So just be careful about about doing stuff like that. Again, good intentions. It's your money, whatever. Don't do it. Number nine, actual unauthorized trading. Right. We Yeah, we, we sort of covered this one back in the time of price thing where so it's not your dad's stock market anymore, where you just can't have the trust and faith of your client. And they say, just go ahead and do whatever you want. And that's fine when the market works. It's when the market doesn't work. And the interesting thing is, I've seen this so many times, it's rarely the client that sues you. And we, we covered this before too. It's rarely the client that sues. It's the nephew. It's the niece. It's the son, the daughter. You have a great relationship with your client, but you don't really have one with the person that's inheriting the money, right? And they're, and they're upset about it. It's the next door neighbor who's trying to also have all good intentions and take care of their friend by telling them what a greedy person you are as the advisor and you shouldn't have done those trades and whatever. That's And the client gets dragged into the middle of it because they don't really feel like they want to do it, but they feel guilty. I see that all the time. I'll say like eight times out of 10, it's not the actual client that starts the, the complaint of the lawsuit. It's, it's the neighbor, it's the nephew. All right, the last one I have at number 10 is uh, is you know manager's loss of confidence. Yeah, I call this one the bucket. Oh, okay. This, <laughs> I call this one the bucket. This is the, if they want to fire you, they'll find a way. One thing that people should really be aware of, even if you're independent, and also I use this term, but it doesn't, it's not the same terminology for, for 1099 independent contractor, but you're essentially employed at will, right? So- Again, there's sort of wrongful termination stuff, but for the most part, you're you're an employee at will, which means your manager, for one reason or another, can terminate you for any number of reasons. So I call this one the bucket. And it could be you're just gruff, you're disruptive in the office, you're creating a hostile environment, according to them. They'll use the uh, loss of confidence as the bucket to terminate you. And then they'll throw into that loss of confidence your high commissions your failure to follow firm policies, your failure to check off a box in the annual questionnaire when you should have, when you were told that you didn't need to, right? All of those things, they'll lump into that. That's like the shotgun approach. They'll just take you out by putting everything under the sun in there. And you know, I would say that one is probably easier to get rehired from, right? Because you, know, you probably have your version of the story which, by the way, we covered in, in our last episode on um, what you should do if you are terminated. 
But that's the that's the bucket one. And so you have to keep that one in mind when you are just operating on a daily basis. And so, you know, the whole gist of this whole thing is really not to get you terrified and, and stop doing business. It's to make sure that you, you are always documenting everything you're doing and understanding that you might have a great relationship with your manager, with your compliance person, with your operations person, but they have a job to do and they have a career to protect as well. And no matter what your intentions are, if something happens that is against company policy or where you feel like you feel like the chief legal counsel, if they got a hold of this thing, would, would throw you out the door, then you shouldn't be doing it. Or document it. Bring people into the loop. You know, email is awesome now. You get a, you get a, walk out of an office me- meeting with your compliance person, send them a confirmation of what the conversation was about, and CC yourself, and then print out that email, keep it in your own file, your own personal file. And by the way, that own, that personal file, like I covered in the last episode, should be at home, not in your office. Because when they terminate you for whatever that reason was, they're not going to give you a chance to go back and clean out your files. So you should be ceasing yourself and then printing out that document, that email, whatever that confirmation is, and keeping a file at, back at home. You know, you bring up an interesting point, maybe a topic for another episode, but so a lot of a lot of the cases I, I looked into and have covered in the past, it would seem like just in general, the firm has a better chance of of getting their way and, and blocking discovery or anything that's going on in these cases than than the advisor. So you're you're at a major disadvantage. To- in major a term- disadvantage. In a right. That's why all of your documentation, whenever something smells funny. Or you, you get called, I'll say called down to the principal's office, but you get called down to the compliance person's office and they start asking you questions. And they say, no, everything's fine. Just We're just going through a series of questions on some of our accounts. And it, the minute you feel like asking them, well, am I in trouble? You might be. And you should start documenting everything. And again, documenting everything, keeping it at home, because they're not going to give you a heads up like, hey, by the way, we're going to fire you this Friday. They're going to say everything's okay. It's all good. It's all good. It's all good until it's not good. So with that said, we appreciate that. We think this is a, a really important topic. It's getting uh, harder and harder to place financial advisors that get terminated and we get weekly. I mean, literally, we get calls weekly. It's, it's harder to place them at new firms. So we're just asking you all to be careful with what you're doing on a daily basis be loyal to your firm, be loyal to your clients, but be but be more loyal to yourself and your family and protect yourself at all times because it's your career on the line and you may not have another option if it happens uh, to the wrong firm at the wrong time. So thank you very much. As always, don't forget to uh, like us, give us those, those five stars. We really appreciate it. Um, I've gotten some great reviews uh, emailed to me. I would ask as a favor to put those reviews on iTunes. It helps us with our ratings. We really, really enjoy doing this. It's definitely a lot more work than I thought, but we really enjoy doing it. And it really means a lot when we get the type of feedback that we uh, we get uh, on our content. Uh, So with that said, thank you very much. We love everyone. Talk to you later. Thanks, everybody.
You've been listening to the Financial Advisors Advisor Podcast, brought to you by Elite Consulting Partners, the leading experts in advisor transitions, succession planning, and broker-dealer and RIA M&A consulting. If you're looking for strategic advice or solutions on any of those topics within the financial services industry, or you just want to subscribe to the podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com.